Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Matt Taylor, Director of the Intergenerational Program at the Center for Independent Studies. I'll be talking to Matt about what else? Intergenerational equity and his plans for the program at CIS. Matt Taylor, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks for asking. Look, well, let's get right into it. You're leading a new program at CIS. It's just starting up. Can you tell us a little bit about your own background and then what your plans are for the program? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a new program of research on sort of intergenerational public policy, the intergenerational aspects of public policy. Um, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity. It's something I'm very excited about. Um, it's uh, it's something that's kind of, I suppose, closer to my heart, having, uh, you know, just 18 months ago, become a father for the first time. So, oh, congratulations. Thanks. Um, you know, the the implications for the policies we make today for future generations is something that's, um, you know, very important to me at this point in my life, as it is, I think, to you know, many parents. Um, so I, I've just come on board just just um, a little bit over a month ago. Prior to that, I was uh, had, had a research position at the Australian National University. Uh, so I spent sort of part of my career at the Australian National University, part of it at the University of Canberra. Prior to that, I was a uh, federal government uh, bureaucrat. Um, mm -hmm. And this is my second stint at CIS. So I was at CIS sort of over the course of 2014 and 2015, um, working on various aspects of social policy. So. I mean, intergenerational public policy is it's sort of interesting because it's not like its own well-defined discipline. Um, it's, it's not like, you know, labor economics or education or something like that, right. but it sort of cuts across um, all of these areas. So while I don't necessarily count myself at this point in time, an expert on intergenerational public policy, I've spent my career looking at a range of issues that do have that really important intergenerational aspect, like retirement incomes and education and and stuff like that. So you know, I think I've got the skills and um, I'm ready to jump into it. Well, welcome to CIS and perhaps I should say welcome back to CIS. Okay. Now we, we know about your, uh, your your now legendary fathering skills, but what other <laughs> skills, so just kidding you there, but what other skills? I'm getting there, I think. <laughs> I understand you're coming from economics. I mean, what area of economics you specialize in and, and what sort of background do you have in economics and public policy? Uh, yeah, so I suppose I probably used to describe myself as a labor economist, but I think right. most of what I've, I've sort of spent my career doing one way or the other is analysis of household survey data and the modeling of tax and transfer policies. Okay. Um, so, so a serious um, empirical economist who's going to bring some numbers to the program. Oh, that's that's very kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there are all sorts of economists out there, and we like to see really, you know, data-driven quantitative research here at CIS. So what sort of areas are you going to be commissioning research in? What are the priorities for the intergenerational program? That's a, I think the program's going to be organized around four primary things. Um, one, mm -hmm. Some of it will be intergenerational inequality. Right. Um, so this is like comparing different generations or cohorts of Australians that were born at different periods of time, but looking at them at the same age. Okay. Because, um, you know, finding that older Australians at a point in time have more wealth than younger Australians is kind of obvious. Like they've had more of a lifetime to accumulate that wealth. That doesn't, right. that in itself doesn't mean the wheels have fallen off your society. In fact, you probably want people towards the end of their lives to have enough wealth to sort of get them through retirement. Right. Um, 
so yeah it's important to look at people at the same age um but there's one of the things that is getting a lot of media attention at the moment is uh, intergenerational inequality in home ownership okay so um so for the the boomer generation and the the ones before you sort of see them entering middle age sort of leveling off at about 80 percent home ownership mm-hmm. not necessarily outright home ownership but you know getting into the the housing market whereas if you look at um if different generations in that 35 to 39 age group um the for the boomers it was sort of three quarters of them had gotten to the housing market in that age okay. group, whereas for my generation it's um under 60 percent. so there's evidence of you know intergenerational i think there's a legitimate concern about intergenerational inequality and from what i've read in the newspapers that's all due to overconsumption of avocados <laughs> I, hear yeah. endless, well, I see <laughs> endless articles about uh you know, avocados versus saving for home ownership but uh, I, I think that was courtesy of bernard salt i think he was um he was the first person to write that in a, an opinion piece um, oh. There are a lot of millennials on Twitter who uh, didn't didn't much like that analysis. Um, but in, so, in all seriousness, I think, yeah. I mean, in, in terms of how we got here, I think the main driver of it is a lack of housing supply. I think there are people who want to tighten up on negative gearing and capital gains tax and, and what have you. But I think that's fiddling around the edges. I think it's mainly a supply story, whether it's because millennial hipsters are eating too much avocado on toast. Um, I think you know, if if you feel like getting the housing market is is something out of reach, then what are you going to do? You're probably going to spend more money on consumption. Right. Well, you still uh, got to uh, eat breakfast. So, <laughs> so, the, so the number one research area for you is intergenerational inequality. But you said there were four main research areas that you... Yeah, yeah. so intergenerational inequality is one of them. Um, this is the philosophy around intergenerational equity um, is something else I want to look at, but I think that'll probably that's more likely to be commissioned research rather than stuff I'm going to undertake myself because that's not really um, my skill set. Uh, but the other thing I want to look at is uh, intergenerational mobility, um, it, and there's there's sort of broadly two ways to look at that. One is absolute, and one in relative terms. We might get to that a little bit later, but the the final theme will be fiscal burden. So um, get to, to what extent are uh, the policy settings that we have in place today, uh, you know, are they fiscally sustainable and to what extent are they going to be financed by um, future generations? Mm-hmm. Or and, and to what extent, I guess, you know, there's going to be some sort of transfer from old to young. That's sort of a, a fairly normal thing. But is that being done in an equitable way? Is it being done in a, okay. in a sustainable way? And I guess because I have a background in modelling, these sorts of policies, that's sort of where I'm most at home. Now, I don't mean to drive things in my own direction, but as a sociologist, not being an economist, of those four topics, the one that probably interests me most is intergenerational mobility. So, I mean, could you give us some just basic vocabulary around, I think you mentioned the terms um, absolute and relative mobility. What are the key issues here for intergenerational mobility? So absolute intergenerational income mobility, which I'll just call absolute mobility, uh, is is fundamentally how many children out earn their parents. Um, and, and usually you want to compare people at the same age. Um, okay. I, most of these studies sort of focus on a late 30s, early 40s, because that's when most people sort of reach um, 
the top of their age earnings profile. It's sort of when you're you're in your prime earnings years, and because it gives you a sense of who's high income and who's low income. Right. Um, so, uh, the the alternative way, or another way of looking at uh, intergenerational uh, income mobility is to consider it in relative terms. Okay. So that's um, that's more about the strength of the association between a child's income and that of their parents. Um, okay. So if if you live in a society where everyone who was born into a household in the top one percent ends up in the top one percent of their generation's income distribution, everyone born at the median ends up, you know, at the median, then you've got no intergeneration, no relative intergenerational mobility. Now, we all want to believe that a rising tide lifts all ships. We, we've heard so much about the extraordinary economic growth in Australia for the last 30 years. Has that rising tide, in fact, been lifting all ships? Have we had absolute intergener intergenerational mobility in Australia? So we have um, about two-thirds of, of current generations are going to out-earn their parents. Um, that's been true for, for quite some time, or well, that, that, that estimate appears to have been relatively stable across time, according to um, the latest research. Okay. But, um, but only two-thirds. Yeah. I mean, that seems very, very, I mean, just my gut instinct is it seems very low when over a 30-year period, we would expect the economy to roughly double in size. I mean, is that is my rough, I think very roughly, is that the right number? Sure, but I guess you'd probably need a lot of economic growth for the income distribution. And, and keep in mind, this is real terms, not nominal terms. Right. So adjusting for, for prices. Um, I think you need probably a lot of economic growth for one distribution, for the child's distribution of income to sort of be completely to the right of the parents yeah. like there's going to be some overlap um as as for i suppose what you raise is a really good question you know, what is the normatively what? correct amount of absolute income mobility like is is two yeah, I, I mean, the reason two -thirds sounded, too little sounded shocking to me is even if there was no economic growth we'd expect 50 percent of children to Earn their parents and fifty percent to under earn their parents. So uh, the fact that it's only two thirds. I mean, I'm sorry, we, we didn't. You know, obviously, everyone listening, we didn't rehearse this. I'm just, uh, I'm just surprised. How could it be only two thirds? Well, I think like so. My view of this literature and the, these estimates is like rather than fixating on particular numbers too much. I think we just like if if we agree that absolute intergenerational income mobility is a good thing. I think we do. I think. I think we can say that's a consensus. I, I'm yet to meet the parent who doesn't want their child to have a higher standard of living than what they enjoy. Then I think we want to get the policy settings right to maximise the chances that someone can do better than their parents. Um, okay. So I, you know, is, is it too low? Could we be doing better? Absolutely. But um, you know, if, if it was ninety percent, would we then say it's a policy failure? Okay. I'm not entirely certain. Um, I, I think it's. I think what we need to focus on is the trend. Like, if we were going backwards, like if it, if it was sixty percent for my generation, and then it became forty percent for my son's generation, then that would suggest we need to take a very long, hard look at our at our um, policy settings. Uh, but I suppose one thing we do know is the the extent of that um, absolute mobility um, has been lower 
for uh, the more recent generations. So it was more like 80% of the boomer generation out earned their parents. So it has been okay. declining over time. And I think that's more of a concern than the, you know, is 60%, you know, or is, you know, is two thirds a good or a bad number? The fact that that's coming down. Um, uh, and the, the researchers that um, wrote this paper for Australia, um, Peter Siminski and Thomas Kennedy, uh, they they try to get a sense of why that's happened, and they put slowing growth, which accounts for about two thirds of that, rather than income inequality within a generation. Um, so I think that that sort of tell I think that tells you something about what policy settings you want. You want pro growth policy settings. You want a dynamic competitive economy. If you want to maximise the chances of children doing better than their parents. Something that strikes me that it's almost unique about the Australian situation in Australia. Uh, you know, roughly something like 30% of the population is foreign born. And so presumably, in that case, they're not entering into these intergenerational surveys because their parents, you know, well, 30% is foreign born, and even larger percentage of parents who are foreign born. So there's this odd situation where a large percentage of the population must not be in these surveys because well, simply put, their parents weren't in Australia. Yeah, so how does that, I mean, might that be, you know, kind of warping these analyses as, you know, a very large number of high income immigrants come in? Is that maybe warping our understanding of intergenerational mobility? Well, perhaps to put it uh, another way, if you have sort of highly aspirational immigrants who do quite well, in their generation but might have come from families that had very very low real incomes measured in australian dollars uh, i yeah. guess it's sort of a yeah um so we could probably spend an entire podcast just picking apart the methodologies <laughs> of these papers but maybe that wouldn't be the most fascinating thing for the, for the listeners but I, I suppose just briefly um some of these studies don't have direct observations of the incomes of the parents. Right. Um, and that's, that um, is partly due to with some of the data limitations in Australia. So what, what some of these studies are doing, they're not measuring the income of the parents directly. They're measuring the report, or the, the child's report of what occupation their parent was in. Oh, okay. And then inferring that. So I, the, the issue you raise, I think, is an important one, um, but I, it, I don't think it's as, well, I think it's a little bit, bit nuanced, I suppose. We don't know exactly what those fathers might have earned in their own country, I guess, is more the issue. Right. But we've got some sense of what they might have earned if they were, you know, here, if, right. if the father was actually present in Australia. Oh, okay. Now, we are a live program, and if you're out there listening live and you'd like to ask a question to Matt, please just feed it through in the YouTube chat, and we will try to get your questions in. Uh, in the meantime, Matt, I'd like to ask you maybe about the more challenging question, which is relative mobility. Uh, I mean, intergenerational mobility sounds great. The, the child of a cashier at a grocery store grows up to become a, a barrister, and, and this is an incredible success story, but... Of course, that kind of intergenerational mobility is only possible if someone who's the child of a barrister ends up being a clerk in a grocery store, right? Because the, 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 
you know, we can't have mobility up with relative mobility up without someone else having relative mobility down. So is relative mobility, well, could you just give us some basics on like, what's the theory around relative mobility? Is relative mobility necessarily a good thing? How much of it is good? Um, are people politically ready to accept relative mobility if it's their child that ends up relatively adjusting downward? Um, all, all good questions. So I might just start with a preliminary about what this literature attempts to, to measure. Sure. So as with absolute, it's about comparisons of children um, and parents. But this is more specifically about the extent to which the parent's income is able is a good predictor of the child's income. Okay. So there, there's Australian studies that suggest the inter relative intergenerational income elasticity in Australia is about 0 0.2. And what yeah, that yeah, means... Explain to us, yeah, what, well, you have to explain to us what that means, yeah. Yeah. So what that means is a 10% increase in the income of a father is going to be associated with a 2% increase in the income of their son. Um, the, the reason why these studies tend to focus on fathers and sons is they tend to spend the entire life course in the labor market. Whereas um, if you're looking at women, that's less the case, but it's it's sort of more of an issue for the older generations of women who may have spent you know, a lot of their career out of the workforce caring for children. Um, so these studies estimate these elasticities, and I guess they're sort of a summary measure of the extent or the association between parental income and, and child income. Um, so in, in Australia, we the estimates tend to come out about 0.2, and that sort of puts us as a, a more mobile intergener a, a more mobile society relative to the US, but not quite as mobile as um, some of the Scandinavian countries. Um, and we, and uh, the, the, the Australian research would suggest that it's, it's been relatively stable since the 1960s, although there are some studies that, that suggest we've become a little bit more immobile recently. Um, but I suppose to address some of the, the normative questions, um, mm -hmm. I suppose, you know, it, it, it is sort of quite a different perspective on mobility, different to absolute mobility. Because as you say, if some if some children are going to move up in their generation, others are going to have to move down. So it's kind of hard to, I guess, to talk about relative mobility separate from a discussion of what merit is. Hmm. And I think in the public policy space, this becomes quite complicated because, like, you know, superficially, we all want the most meritorious to rise to the top. No, no one, no one's going to argue otherwise. But then we've got to agree on what merit is. Mm. And if you want, you know, centrally planned policies, you know, a government that's highly interventionist, interventionist in, interventionist in ensuring that it is the most meritorious that rise to the top. I mean, you need a consensus on what merit is, and then you need some objective measure of it. And uh, it's hard to get three people in a room who are going to agree on that. Um, so while so I, I think my view of this is you want the positions of power and prestige in your society to be contestable. Right. And you want them to be competitive. I don't lie awake at night thinking about this 0.2 and, 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 and what it means. I, I, I don't think we need to be okay. that prescriptive. 
That question merits an interesting one, though. Uh, I mean, we have this debate in universities. Uh, you know, if we want to admit the most meritorious people for a competitive degree program, would that be those who have, say, the highest score on the entry test? Or would that be those who accomplish the highest score relative to their own high school, right? So that they're especially performing well, given the milieu yeah. out of which they're coming. Um, do you have any view on these sort of you know, social interventionist approaches to merit? So I, I'm probably inclined to take the latter view, um, at, at least in the context of financing higher education. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so my view is you the people you the people who should be going to university should be those who are going to benefit from it. You know those who are going to complete, they're going to get the higher earnings from doing so, um, and that generates not just private benefits for them, but also social benefits for the the rest of us. So I think that's that's what you want. Um, yeah. So if you have people who might have had, you know, so the the prospective university students are going to have quite experience quite different levels of quality of secondary education. Um, so I guess, supposed to use an analogy, the starting line isn't in the same position for everyone. Mm -hmm. But what I think matters for public policy is who's going to be able to finish the race. Like there's no point financing the education of someone who's not going to get through. That's true regardless of whether they came from a private or a public school. But there is a, a lot of research that suggests if you compare students from private schools and public schools who got the same ATAR score. So they're, um, so, you know, in as far as that's a good measure of ability, um, they've got the same ability. It's often the case that the ones in public schools outperform their private school peers because for them to have gotten that ATAR, they've probably had to have been a bit more self-directed in their learning, a little bit more tenacious maybe. Um, so th what I think that tells you is that you know, the ATAR score probably contains some important information about the extent to which you're going to get through your, your university education. Right. But the the strength of that signal or how meaningful a signal it is, is not going to be the same for all students. So I'm, I'm definitely in that, that latter camp. Now, you said that one of the topics your program on inter intergenerational program at CIS would be tackling was the fiscal burden. Now, I've heard economists on both sides of these issues, and I, and I want to be clear, I'm not an economist. That's why I'm turning to you. I, I've had some say that, oh, you know, so much debt has been run up during the coronavirus crisis that- That's $670 you know, billion. That the next generation will be paying for it for you know, however many decades. On the other hand, I hear other economists saying that all economic payments are made out of current income. And so there's no such thing in a way as this- built up debt. Instead, it's a distributional issue. It's a matter of who's paying, not a matter of the burden being on you know, these particular people, but rather how society chooses to pay in the current year. Uh, and, and so I've heard these two versions of, of economics. Uh, can you kind of you know, cut the clutter for us on this and explain what are we talking? We're talking about a fiscal burden on the future. Is, is it really literally a fiscal burden on these young people to pay for something that happened in the past? Or is it just that, you know, society will be apportioning its resources differently in the future? So I, th I think you're right. Like what matters here is who's gonna pay it off. But there's definitely an age dimension to that. 
So um, yeah, the, the the beneficiaries of of the um, some of the policies that were made around COVID, a lot of them were older people who are not going to be paying it back because they're not necessarily going to be around for for that much longer. So it's going to be um, younger Australians who are going to be facing higher um, you know, higher average tax rates than what they might otherwise would to ensure that we can service that debt. Like you, even if you don't think we need to pay the debt back, we've definitely got to be making those interest payments or otherwise we default on our debt and we start to look like a basket case economy. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's no way around it. The younger Australians are going to face higher average tax rates and, and so will future generations of, of Australians. But um, if the debt is internal, and, and again, I'm, I'm not an economist, so yeah. I'm, I'm asking you this to, to explain this because I've, I've read this from other economists. If the debt is internal and it's not foreign debt, then current consumption can't, or current, a reduction in current consumption can't possibly pay for something that's already happened in the past. That is, whatever happened in 2021, 2022 was paid for in 2021, 2022. Is it really the case that we're going to give up consumption in 2023, four, five to pay for something? Or is it just that a, we're going to redistribute income in 2022, 23, 24, 25 from taxpayers to bondholders, but within the same society, which is sure. Yeah, yeah that, that's where I thought you were, you were going with this. Like if we lived sure. in a closed economy, then I guess someone owns the debt and someone's going to get it. The, the additional tax revenue is going to be paid by someone to hand the interest payments to someone else in that in Australia who happens to own the debt. Um, I don't have those number at my fingertips, but I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say a lot of it is going to be foreign debt. So it is going to be. Oh, it is. So uh, does Australia uh, have substantial foreign debt? Sorry? Does Australia have substantial foreign debt? I'm. I'm a newbie here. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how much right. of it, it is foreign, but I, you know, we're, we're a relatively, you know, small economy. I would think a large percentage of it okay. um, will be foreign debt. And then from this standpoint, and again, forgive the amateur questions, um, we all are afraid about inflation, you know, and I think none of us want to see high inflation, but in a kind of strange way, is inflation solving the intergenerational equity problem because the bondholders are being hit, the bondholders are being hit by inflation, whereas the young people are seeing rising salaries because of inflation? Well, I don't know that they're seeing rising or abruptly rising salaries just yet, but I think what really matters is what your standard of living is in real terms and. I think that the data on that suggests we're not necessarily um, moving forward there. Um, but this, the, these matters of fiscal policy is like you, debt is one aspect of it. Um, but it's really, you know, what, what was, when we were taking out that debt, what expenditures were, was it financing and who was benefiting from that, I guess. Um, and the older gen, there's increasing pressures on the budget due to an ageing Australia. So at the, at the start of this century, there were upwards of five working age Australians for every retiree. Uh, when the the 
when the amount of debt peaks at over half of annual GDP, there's going to be something like 3.3. So look at young, younger generations today, there's going to be fewer of them per retiree right. who'll be taxed to fund the age pension, age care, okay. greater health expenditures. Um, and it doesn't so mean Go on, sorry. Yeah, so I, I think if you're interested in intergenerational equity, there then sort of arises a question of um, is it possible that our policy settings aren't taking into account the fact that some of this age cohort have significant amounts of wealth that they could potentially be drawing on themselves rather than asking young Australians and future generations to face higher average tax rates going forward. I think that's sort of the more important policy debate that needs to be had. And it's one that we can, at CIS, can contribute to. All right. Well, Matt Taylor, we're out of time. I always do lose track of time because I enjoy these discussions so much. I have a lot more questions to ask you, but I'm not able to get to them. So I do apologize for that. Matt Taylor, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Great to be with you. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Thank you for watching On Liberty.